0: Hello and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. Today's story comes with some pretty significant trigger warnings um, of some topics that I don't normally talk too much about. Um, first there is the mention of abortion. Uh, I just mentioned the word, I don't go into details or opinions about it. Um, and then the death of newborn infants in some fairly graphic detail. Um, and lastly, some mental health issues. So if you think that today's episode might be too much for you, I totally understand. We'll see you next week, but if you could just do me a favor and download the episode, even if you won't be listening, it just kind of helps my numbers. I chose today's case because it is so bizarre and leaves so many questions unanswered. And normally, I start by telling you the case, this is the case of, uh, and then I name the victim rather than the perpetrator. But I can't do that in this case, and you will soon soon learn why. This is the bizarre case of Simi Kalan. Whose full name is Samrat Palan, was born in 1982 in Chandigarh, India. She was raised in the Sikh faith, although there isn't anything in any of the sources that I read if she actually followed the religion faithfully herself. The Sikh faith is, and now this is me sort of learning as I go, so if I get anything wrong, please correct me. Uh, I am trying to learn about a lot of things here on this podcast and I'm always happy to learn from people with experience rather than just what I read or whatever. But according to my research, Sikhism is the youngest of the major religions only dating back to the 15th century, but is the ninth largest in the world with about 25 million followers. Somewhat unique among the world's religions, Sikhism rejects the notion that any religion, even theirs, holds a monopoly on the ultimate spiritual truth. Sikhs are loyal to one creator, and live by a few basic principles. To treat everyone equally, having no distinction between classes, race, or other religions, always be absorbed in meditation and prayer, make an honest income by honorable methods, share your earnings and selflessly serve others, and avoid the five sins of ego, which are, of course, pride, lust, greed, anger, and attachment. Simi emigrated to Canada in 1999 when she was only 17. And I don't believe she moved with her parents because the sources all say that she moved to Calgary and settled in with her aunt and uncle in the neighborhood of Martindale. After finishing school, she got a job as an admin assistant or receptionist at a law firm. Now a lot of this story is really shrouded in mystery. So I'm not sure how her relationship with her aunt and uncle actually went. But I do know that she lived a very private life. Uh, She didn't share very many details of her life with anyone. uh, And later reports that said that her family didn't have any contact with her after she had moved out of her aunt and uncle's place into her own place. And sometime while she was in her early 20s, she met a man named Harnik Mahal, who was a long haul trucker and they moved into a basement apartment in Falcon Ridge in the city's northeast and then finally settled together in Terradale in 2006 when she was 24. It's actually a bit of a mystery when she started her relationship with Harnik. I'm thinking that it had to have been in early 2006 and that they moved into the place in Falcon Ridge together fairly soon after meeting, and then only stayed there for a couple of months before settling in Terradale. Their relationship continued to 2009, although they did sleep in separate bedrooms. Again, there's a bit of a total mystery about that, and I'm not sure if that was due to just some snoring on someone's part, or if they had started to drift apart um, and were no longer intimate, or what the deal was with that but they were still living together and there were no issues of any fighting or anything like that that I'm aware of. The only other information that I could find about Simi was that she was an obsessive house cleaner and kept the apartment completely spotless. Um, Harpreet is um, the brother of Simi and he said that he last saw her when she moved out of the family home in 2005 And he said of her, quote, she was really strong. Whatever she wanted to do, she did with her own life. She moved out. She did her own thing. Um, And accordingly, I think after she moved out of her aunt's uncle's place, she continued to move around quite a bit, um, living in at least four different rental suites between uh, 2005 to 2009. Now, because Harnick was a trucker, he would work on the road for stretches of time, sometimes being away for about a week or so. On the morning of October 4th, 2009, he arrived home from one of his work trips to a quiet house, which wasn't unusual. Simi lived a very quiet life and wasn't, you know, and was often very quiet just in her daily activities. But on this day, the house was eerily quiet. He called to Simi and he got no response, so he starts walking through the place and finds her in her bedroom. She's lying face down on the floor and isn't moving. He called 911 and and it was the police that came so either he knew that she was dead and beyond help which could be the case because he had been away for a number of days and it's not clear when she actually died Um, and there was there was blood around her body like quite a bit of blood so he likely suspected that she had died by suicide or possibly been injured due to some kind of maybe a stabbing. Again, there isn't a lot of details about that, and I can only infer this because it was in fact the police that attended the scene and not paramedics, Um, but they determined that her death was not suspicious at the time, leading the media to assume that it was suicide so at the time they didn't really report on her death. Um, But whenever somebody dies outside of a hospital setting, an autopsy is done. So her body was taken to the medical examiner's office to, to determine the exact cause of death. The other reason that leads me to believe that at the time that she was found, she had been dead for a while is that when the police came, they didn't search the house. And they the smell of death that was in the house wasn't something that surprised them or was noteworthy to them, and was attributed to Simmy's body at the time. The next day, Harnik is kind of beside himself, not really knowing what to do, and he's standing in Simmy's bedroom, grieving and just trying to decide what to do with all her belongings. So he starts to, you know, pick just pick away and kind of just look at look around and see what needs to be dealt with. When he sees a suitcase inside of a garbage bag. And he pulls the suitcase out of the bag away, and there's, well, for lack of a better description, liquidy gunk and what looks like maybe blood leaking from it. Now, he knows immediately that whatever is in that suitcase reeking to all hell wasn't going to be good. So he called the police again, knowing that whatever they were going to find in that suitcase Um, which he rightfully and fully understandably had no intentions of opening himself, was going to be something that required a medical examiner. And it was in fact a medical examiner that came to the house and opened the suitcase for him. Now, I don't think that there's much that would shock and disgust a medical examiner in a city the size of ours. But he was shocked and disgusted when he opened the suitcase and there lay the decomposing body of a newborn baby who was still wearing a hospital ID bracelet. Obviously, Harnick was horrified at the discovery. And he told police that he, he did know in the spring that Simi had told him that she was pregnant, but you know, maybe because of their age or their financial situation, he had advised her to, and they had both agreed that she would get an abortion And he thought that she had done that. So the mystery is kind of beginning here. Um, Did she maybe not get an abortion and hid the pregnancy and the birth and then committed suicide over keeping the baby's body in a suitcase? Uh, It's horribly awful and strange, but things are about to get worse. At this point, the autopsy of Simi is still not complete and they have taken the baby's body away to be autopsies as well, Uh, hopefully to give Harnick some kind of answers about his mysterious and obviously very secretive girlfriend. But Harnick and his sister, who isn't named in any of the documents, decide to tear her room apart looking for any clues as to what the heck was going on in Simi's mind before she died. And another horrifying discovery was made by Harnick's sister. Another box, and this one contained the body of a newborn boy and a rotting placenta. Now, Harnick is (laughs) completely aghast. I mean, he knew nothing about... I mean, he knew about Simi's pregnancy, but... But who was the second baby and like, what the heck is going on? And after the second discovery, the police think this is nuts. And they do a full search of the apartment, grab all the bags, boxes, suitcases, anything that you could possibly put a small body into and take that down to the medical examiner's office to be examined and lo and behold, the medical examiner finds a third baby, the sex of which was not revealed in yet another garbage bag. The results of Simi's autopsy would reveal that she had died from complications of childbirth. Harnick has questions, lots of questions. A background investigation into Simi discovered that in 2005, Simi had arrived at the Peter Lougheed Hospital and gave birth alone to a baby girl listed in the hospital documents as Reet Kalan. Now some reports say her name was Reem, but most of the reports I read say Reet and no father was listed, but she hadn't attended any follow-up and the baby's whereabouts after her birth were not accounted for. Now, when I gave birth in 1998 and again in 2000 here in Calgary, there really was no follow-up from the hospital except for uh, a lactation nurse that came by about two days later to make sure that the babies were feeding. But maybe if you don't opt to breastfeed, they don't follow up at all. Um, Because I did most of all of my follow-up through my family doctor. But it seems weird to me that if a baby is born and there's a record of birth, How does anyone know what happens to that baby? So I guess a baby can just be murdered and tossed away and no one would ever know about it? To me, that just seems like a bad system. But alas, that seems to be the case here. She gave birth at a hospital, came home with a live baby, killed the baby. Although due to the level of decomposition, they weren't able to determine exactly how Reem had died. Reed had died. Uh, and then for whatever reason she kept the body in a suitcase for four years carrying it around even as she moved apartments. Harnick did reveal to the police that in the spring of 2009 she had learned that she was pregnant and the police believed that it was with twins due to the single placenta and the two bodies uh, and that they had both believed to have died at the same time and Harnick and her had like i said agreed that they were going to get an abortion and in fact her doctor did make an appointment for her for first an ultrasound and then the abortion but she never attended either appointment instead she hid the pregnancy from not just harnick but from other family members and her like her work co-workers and gave birth at home only that time it didn't particularly well. Um, but after they were born, she was well enough to put them into garbage bags and into a box that she had hid. And they also found a journal or diary that she had kept. I don't know specifically what she wrote, but media reports say that they alluded to the fact that she didn't feel any remorse or sadness about their deaths. But she did for some reason have an attachment to their bodies. And that's why she kept them. Uh, The journal also contained a note that the police describe as, quote, contained a phrase that inferred that if anything ever happened to herself, Harnick did not do it, end quote. The autopsies on the second and third baby weren't able to determine a cause of death either, but there was evidence that they had been alive as the lungs had been inflated. Uh, they believe that the babies had been born in the summer of 2009, so maybe as much as three months before Simi died herself. Which I'm you no know, doctor, but I wonder if maybe there had been a, actually been a second placenta and it had re- remained maybe inside Simi, and she became septic or something, and died as a re- result of that. But furthering that mystery, her coworkers at the law office said that she was a hard worker, although very private and hadn't missed any work up to her death. And none of them knew that she was pregnant either. Uh, They reported that up until her death, she had seemed quite happy. So her death was still a bit of a mystery because complications from childbirth, I think is just kind of a vague description. uh, And there are still media reports that insist it was a suicide. But because Simi and all the babies were dead and Harnick didn't know anything, the case was closed and very little information was actually released. The search of the apartment also found that she had kept bloody towels and clothes and a portion of a garden hose that she had used during the birth um, and they were all found hidden in her room. Now, here's another strange detail. All of Harnick's conversations with her police were through an interpreter. But Mahal also told police that there had been a strong odor coming from uh, coming from Simi's bedroom. And he said that they had separate bedrooms and she never let him into her bedroom. And for about two or three months, they had been spraying air freshener to cover up the smell. And adding to that mystery is a report of a quote from, from the investigators in, um, it was in the Guelph Mercury Tribune, Tribune that says, quote, it is expected at this time that the three infants at the medical examiner's offices are not the infant that was born on December 19th, 2005. Um, so I don't like, was there a fourth baby? Uh, were they wrong when they said that? Did they actually say that? I don't know. And the only information that was directly revealed from investigators was from Inspector Guy Slater of the Major Crimes Unit, who said in a press conference, the bodies were contained in airtight containers inside suitcases in a closet in one of the rooms in the house. This played a significant part in concealing the bodies and also any order that, that odor that may have resulted. Every indication is Simi's common-law husband, co-workers and family were unaware of her pregnancies as she went to great lengths to conceal them. From the get-go she was a very private person and um, she and her husband uh, and the efforts she went through. She concealed her actions in the births of the children and their bodies not just from him but from family and friends. Simi's behavior is consistent with depression and borderline personality disorder, which is defined as a pervasive pattern of instability of personal relationships, self-image and impulsivity that begins by early adulthood and is present in a variety of contexts. Based on the physical and psychological evidence, this case has many of the characteristics of inficide. Now he couldn't say whether or not Simi had actually killed them or killed the babies but he had said it certainly is the strongest hypothesis that would come out of this uh, we will never have all of the answers in this case many of the answers are known only to simi now the forensic pathologist dr thomas dalby he did kind of it's kind of called like a psychological autopsy to try and gain some insight into simi's behavior and his review also included reviewing the diary that she had kept um, which in about the diary he said that she didn't address the babies and therefore there was no remorse but it was clear that she was significantly depressed at times looked at herself as worthless and had lost her will for life the deceased had friends and acquaintances but those attachments were rather ambiguous her attachment to her children seems to be much stronger
1: when you visit arizona time is measured in moments Uh, He said that the most disturbing part
0: of the case for him was that Kimmy had kept her dead children so close to her despite having um, had many opportunities to leave the children or discard their bodies. Now the diary that he reviewed was written in Hindi and through interviews with friends and family uh, they found that Simi had often overreacted to situations and would be happy one day and then totally depressed the next. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the mental health aspect of this case. And one thing that really bugs me about all the talk that we do in this country, at least about mental health initiatives and the Bell Let's Talk Day and all that, is that there really seems to be a lot of talk and initiatives and awareness around only depression and anxiety. And some of the more serious mental health issues, like borderline personality disorder, bipolar, uh, and certainly schizophrenia, nobody likes to talk about those issues, despite the fact that a lot of cases of murder brings them up and certainly not all people with bipolar disorder uh, commit murder or even violent but disordered thinking which is associated with personality disorders change that sort of changes one's thought process about a lot of things and is far too often associated with violent crimes Uh, Now, of course, that's not an excuse for murder murder. There is no excuse for murder. But according to the Cleveland Clinic, pregnancy denial may actually occur in both psychotic and non psychotic forms. Um, then in cases of non-psychotic denial, which is believed to be the case of Simi, um, there's about three different types. There's pervasive denial, that's the where the woman is not, she, like she just doesn't even admit the existence of a pregnancy to enter her consciousness. There's affective denial, where the woman is aware that she's pregnant, but unwilling to allow it to affect her feelings. Um or to take, you know, any care of herself or the fetus during her pregnancy. And then persistent denial is the denial that accompanies the awareness of pregnancy in the third trimester, um, where the delivery of the baby might be associated with disassociation or conversion reactions. Borderline personality disorder is a mental health condition Uh, People who have, it's um, shortened version is BPD, they have an intense fear of an abandonment and have, they really have trouble regulating their emotions, especially anger. Um, And they're also very impulsive and can have sometimes very dangerous behavior, things like reckless driving, threatening self-harm, and that makes it difficult for them to maintain their relationships. It's a part of a group of conditions called Cluster B personality disorders, which involve dramatic and very erratic behaviors. Personality disorders are chronic and dysfunctional behavior patterns that are completely inflexible, prevalent, and lead to social issues and distress. One of the biggest problems with BPD is that many people who live with it don't even know that they have it uh, and don't even realize that there's a better way to be living their lives most personality disorders begin in the sort of late teen years when your personality develops is, is still developing and um, so most people that are diagnosed are over the age of 18. although anyone can get borderline personality disorder it's more common if you have family history of it or if you have a history of anxiety, depression, or any eating disorders, uh, you're also at higher risk. Nearly 75% of people that are diagnosed with BPD are females or at least assigned female at birth. And the research shows that many men or people that are assigned male at birth are just as equally affected by it, but it's often misdiagnosed as PTSD. If you know or suspect that you may know somebody with personality disorder, you're going to normally see the following signs in that person. Definitely a fear of abandonment. It's it's very common for people with BPD to feel very uncomfortable being alone and feel very afraid of being abandoned or neglected. And so they might be the type that tracks the movements of their loved ones um, or physically tries to stop them from leaving. Uh, Or they might be the type that pushes people away before they can actually be rejected. They have unstable and very intense relationships. So they, they sort of change their mind about people very abruptly. They can go from, you know, feeling like this is the best relationship. And I love this person very much to like, I hate them and they're, they're terrible people. So, their relationships, even with family members, can be very chaotic and unstable. Um, they have a very unstable self image and sense of themselves. They might dramatically or abruptly change their self-image, like their own image of themselves, um, changing their goals, their opinions, careers, friends. Um, I don't know if you've ever met that type of people that just kind of bounces from one thing to another. Rapid mood changes, impulsive and dangerous behavior, as I mentioned before, uh, repeated self-harm or suicidal behavior, and anger management issues. Now, the reason why I bring this up is that Pregnancy denial and the murder of newborns is not a new phenomenon and happens, I think, far too frequently and I believe is directly correlated with the lack of early interventions we have in this country. Uh, I think that we just don't talk about the real stuff enough. We encourage people to share their feelings and talk about their feelings of depression and anxiety. But what happens when you actually do that? People don't want to hear about it. Um, Not in detail anyways. So it's sort of like people asking how your weekend was. They don't really want to know. Um, They're just asking for the purposes of small talk. And I think that mental health, in my opinion, has become small talk in this country. Um, I think that you can have depression and anxiety and you can tell people that you have it, but don't actually talk about it and don't actually let it affect anything that you're doing. So someone with a personality disorder, they aren't going to talk about it and seek help and people around them just think that they're maybe quirky and impulsive, um, but no one ever really stops to think that maybe this person has trouble regulating their emotions uh, people will post these videos on youtube of someone having a meltdown in walmart as entertainment and nobody ever stops to think that hey maybe this person has trouble regulating their moods um, i don't have any answers on how to intervene but but i think better identification of personality disorders before they lead to issues to the person's life would be a good start i think that it just really bugs me that um we're all talk and no action It's almost like how it's kind of become popular to be able to say that you have anxiety and depression, um, but don't actually have that. Like, that's not cool. So how many times when someone's murdered, do we hear that the murderer was a narcissist or had some kind of personality disorder? And what does that say? To me, it says that for some people who think differently um, than, say, somebody who is neurotypical, uh, and when they're up against some kind of, you know, the right kind of stress under their own personality the choices that they make are going to be very different than say you and i would make and sometimes leading to tragedy and how many of those tragedies could be prevent if we were able to early intervene when we saw these different thinking patterns Uh, to me that's an interesting strategy obviously easier said than done but i think it's food for thought now just to give you an idea of how this kind of disordered thinking plays out when it comes to newborns uh, Tanya Rodriguez of New York City was sentenced to 16 years in prison after being convicted of smothering her newborn son and then carrying his little body around in a bag while shopping around Victoria's Secret. Rodriguez was arrested at Victoria's Secrets by a security guard who at first suspected she was shoplifting. And when, he, when the guard searched Rodriguez's bag, he noticed a rather foul smell and saw this tiny body of her newborn baby. In January 2016, Amber Craker of Albany, Texas, was sentenced to life in prison after being convicted of murdering her newborn child in 2016. She killed her baby girl by stabbing her in the neck and chest. Um, Craker had originally claimed that the injuries happened after her hand had slipped while trying to cut the baby's umbilical cord. Cassandra Norwood of Athens, Georgia, was convicted in February 2008 of stabbing her newborn baby to death just minutes after she gave birth to him in her bedroom in 2012. She also reportedly told police that she stabbed the baby accidentally while trying to cut the umbilical cord. Over a 10-year period, Megan Huntsman of Pleasantville, Pleasant Grove, Utah, Gave birth to six babies and asphyxiated all of them at her sentencing. Her statement to the court said in part, in some small way, I wanted to help them, avoid the terrible life I would have given them, deprived my little babies of the opportunity of life. Those babies aren't coming back, and they will never because of and they will never because of my actions. Um, she actually concealed all six of her pregnancies from her family and friends, and ultimately blamed drugs for the murders. Um, And then in one of the worst cases here in Canada, Teeny Rose Steer of Kindersley, Saskatchewan, killed her one-month-old baby by throwing her against a wall when she wouldn't settle down and stop crying on September 27th, 2018. She was 28 at the time, uh, and when she heard a crack as the baby hit the wall she put the baby back into her crib and claimed that she'd found her that way she was originally charged with second degree murder but pled guilty to manslaughter she changed her story about her baby's death a few times first she said that she was found dead in her crib then she said that her other three-year-old daughter was jealous of the newborn and had hurt her and it wasn't until 17 months after that that she finally revealed what had actually happened in his sentencing decision, the judge said, quote, This very young child had a right to live a life unmarked by violence, and she had lost that night. That must never be forgotten. Now, Teeny blamed poverty and a troubled childhood for the murder. The defense argued that she hadn't slept in days and was in a state of extreme exhaustion. Um, I would think that there is evidence of some disordered thinking in all of those cases, but nobody wants to talk about that. And that was the bizarre case of Simi Kalan. Babies and children, I think, are the hardest to talk about for me. I can't even watch Train Spotting because of the scene with the baby. The mental picture that I get in my mind of a tiny baby, those little fingers and the toes, and just how delicate and fragile they seem and just so cute and defenseless. And actually, whenever I think of babies, I always remember when my son was little when he was a baby. He was a chubby little thing which is funny because now he's far from chubby, but he had these cheeks that you, ch- I just couldn't stop kissing his little cheeks and I would pick him up and I would just kiss his cheeks like a little million little kisses. Um, and I would have done the same to Cecilia, but she was a squirmy little thing that didn't really want as much cuddling as Garen did. Ugh, stories about babies are just very hard. I hope that you will join me again next week where there won't be any talk of murdering babies. I promise. And thank you so much for sticking around to listen.